Uh, they have a lot of uh, poor people down in Belize that need shoes, so you'll have to walk out of here without yours. Sorry about that. We, we have to lie every once in a while just to support missions. So I'm sure you can do without your shoes. No, I'm only teasing. I'm sure they'll be right back there where you left them. A lot prettier. Take your uh, Bibles and turn to the last book in the Old Testament. It's called Malachi. And uh, I can't believe we only have four more Thursdays together on the Minor Prophets. I'm going to kind of miss the Minor Prophets, you know. <laughs> next year we're going into Mark. It's going to be a whole lot easier. We're going to look at Mark's Gospel next year. I'm already excited about it. But uh, let's look at Malachi. We've seen that Malachi contains a higher percentage of verses of direct quotes from God of any book in the Bible, actually. And uh, we've seen that when they come back from exile, they've got all kinds of problems. The first problem was the one of worship. But before Malachi began to address any of the problems, he wanted them to know that God loved them and that he had always shown his favor to them. And that's exactly what we need to know before we deal with any of these problems, whether it's worship that's addressed in chapter 1 or, as we saw last week in the first half of chapter 2, dealing with the issue of church discipline. We need to be disciples, disciplined believers. And they were not. They sent their priests back out into the field. Go get a real job. We don't need to be paying people to teach us the Bible or to lead us in worship and all those sorts of things. And uh, Malachi said, you bring those folks back. And uh, he didn't he didn't see here anywhere. Pay them well. I was looking for that verse. But I didn't I didn't find that in here. But he said, you get those leaders back in business and whether they're paid leaders or volunteer leaders, uh, get them back in business. This is important. Then we turn to the issue of the family uh, that begins with chapter 10. I mean, chapter two, verse 10. And we're going to read these verses and. Obviously, this is really important because what, what had happened, we've seen all of society was a wreck. They came back from Babylon. They thought they were going to reestablish the kingdom. And before half a century was out, they were in disarray. They were, they were ready to be judged again and sent back into exile because of their disobedience. They, they had just had 50 years since the temple had been built, and now they're in a mess again. And one of the biggest messes they had socially was the dissolution of the family. Sound familiar? Uh, when theology goes bad and people do not know the love of God through Jesus Christ, then worship goes bad, and then church life goes bad, and then families go bad, and then you've got a total mess in your hands. And we're seeing the generational effects of this. Some of us have very personal observations in our own families of seeing generational effects of broken families. Uh, many of you in this, home have come, uh, in this room have come from broken homes. Uh, many of you in this room uh, are, have been involved in broken homes and you are the spouse. Uh, we've seen the brokenness. It's almost like it's passed down from generation to generation. And that's what was happening with Israel. Their social life was a mess. And they were experiencing all the brokenness of people who were, who were not living out their covenant marriage um, the way God had designed it. And before we begin this, let's remember, guys, verses 1 through 5. God loves you. Even if you're a screw-up, God loves you. Jacob was a screw-up, and God loved him. And that's the reason God said, hey, don't forget, Jacob I loved. Yeah, Jacob. So don't think I'm talking to you about your worship or about your church life or your family life as one who doesn't love you. Don't think I'm talking to you about this as one who doesn't have a plan for recovery. I'm not just giving you words that are going to make you fall into despair and and a long guilt trip. I'm one who's going to speak to you strongly about these things, says the Lord, as one who loves you, cherishes you, and has got a game plan for you. So don't hear the word of God and start pouting about how miserable you are or how bad you are or that, well, God and the church obviously aren't for me. No, why don't you try this method? Why don't you try repentance? <laughs> it leads to joy. It leads to recovery. It leads to a change in direction. And it leads to a, hot, a lot happier and holier life. So don't start off listening to any of these words with, you know, woe is me and there's no hope for me. It's just the opposite. The reason that we get these words is because there is hope for you. There is no purpose whatsoever in my mind in reading the Bible, especially the laws of the Bible, if there's no hope for change. Why waste our time just to damn ourselves? 
Uh, but if there's hope for change and hope for enjoying more of God's goodness, then let's look at the law because the law is the method and the way of his blessing. So don't start off with a negative cast. Now, for those of you who have been divorced, you above all people want us to talk about marriage and divorce. If there's anybody who knows about the pain of divorce, it's somebody who's gone through it. So I always feel like when we're talking on this topic, <clears throat> the one group I've got going, go get them, preacher, is the divorce group. <laughs> and, uh, and I want you to know, if I, if I need any examples, I'll just call on some of you during this lesson. <laughs> it really is a painful experience. That's the reason that we have a divorce recovery ministry that, that Neil mentioned even in his prayer. Because if you do have a divorce, even if it was completely your fault, and it was for all the wrong reasons, God's got a recovery plan for you. That's the reason we have divorce recovery in our church. I know other churches do too. Because even if God tells you not to do something, and you stupidly go do it, has he, has he no more plan for you? No, of course he does. And you find this in the Scriptures. He has a plan in, uh, Genesis, in uh, Deuteronomy 24 for divorce. He says to them, don't get a divorce. And then he tells them how to do it. Go figure that. So God is so gracious that even when you disobey his law, he's got ways to regulate even your disobedience. <laughs> this is some gracious father. Uh, so let's be grateful that he's got a plan for every single one of us. And those of you who are sitting there thinking you have such wonderful marriages, you've been such a great spouse. Just remember, the Lord knows every heart. <laughs> no pride allowed in here at all. Uh, probably... As John Calvin said, you're just lucky. Uh, he didn't actually say that, in case you're wondering. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, uh, neither did the Bible, by the way. Uh, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Let's get into this very touchy issue here. Here's what Malachi says, and more importantly, this is what God, the Holy Spirit, says through his prophet. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Okay, clearly, guys, there are, there are two basic sections in this paragraph. First of all, in verses 10 through 12, he addresses those who are single, what kind of person ought you to marry. And in verses 13 through 16, he's addressing, well, what do you do after you get married? All right. Now, first of all, then, in verses 10 through 12, let's, let's put it this way. Our relationship with God determines our selection of a spouse. He's basically saying the spouse you select has everything to do with the God you have selected. So you choose your God first, and then the choice of spouse you make flows out of that relationship you have with him. Now, some really strong language is used in verses 10 and 11. And I mean really strong. It's kind of like the Lord is saying, I want to be sure you get this one. Because he is showing us how much he cares. God really cares about whom we marry. He's saying, 
I'm going to give you a theological principle, and I want you to know this is important. And for those of you who are single, whether old or young, this is important. And I say old or young. Sometimes those of you who are older, you've been married before, you're either divorced or widowed, you think, well, I'm an experienced guy. I'm older in years. Everybody kind of knows, you know, I need a partner, so it doesn't matter too much who I marry. Oh, yes, it does too. If you leave your finger there in Malachi and uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be coming back to 1 Corinthians 7, so you can just make a little, put a marker there or something if you want to. But look toward the end. He talks about what happens when your spouse dies. And he says in verse 39, this is on page uh, 1853, page 1853. 1 Corinthians 7:39. Paul says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. And that word bound is a very important word because marriage is a binding. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. All right. So if your spouse dies, you're no longer bound. You're not bound to a dead person. It's over. That marriage is over. You're free from that binding. You marry anybody you want to if they're in the Lord. This is for old people as well as young people. So God cares about this in your life all the way through your life, about who you marry. Now, here's the way he puts it. He says to violate his standard is, first of all, a sin against God's character. So if you say, I'm just going to marry anybody I want to because, shoot, she looks great. I want to sleep with her. Or she's just got this great personality. She'll come around. Really? <laughs> Gentlemen, what is one of the first lessons you learn in about the second month of your marriage? You ain't going to change her very much. And the more you try, the worse it gets. And if it's true with little things about which way the toilet paper rolls out, I'm telling you, it's a lot stiffer when you talk about things like things of the heart. So don't be presumptuous with either her or the Lord. So we must be very careful that we do it the way God says, because otherwise it's a sin against his character. Uh, Malachi says, have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? So he's saying, first of all, he's speaking to Judah. He's speaking to the church. He's saying we've all got one father. One God made us all. Now, how is it that you're going to deny his rights over you by marrying whom you want? Is he creator? Is he owner or is he not? He's owner of your body, of your decisions in your business. He's the owner of your participation in your church. He's owner of your choice of spouse. He's owner of your dating life, everything else. And our children and our grandchildren need to know this. He owns us. That's what it means for him to be creator. So Malachi starts there. See, not, is he the creator or is he not? For when you make a decision, you're going to do things the way you want to do them because you think she's attractive or winsome or would make a nice friend for you. You've just decided that God's not your owner anymore. That, that's what he's saying. So just realize that when we violate these standards and when we're not involved with our children, as we'll talk about in a moment, we're just encouraging them to be their own God. And violate the doctrine of creation. I tell you what, we can have all the debates we want to in the public schools about creation. But if you don't live it out in practice, what difference does it make if we argue over doctrine in the public schools? Here's where it's far more important to show who creator is by the way we act about being his creatures. So that's what he's saying. To sin against God's character when we violate his standard for whom we ought to be marrying. Secondly, it's a violation of our covenant with God. Why did we profane the covenant with our fathers? You notice he didn't say, why do we profane the marriage covenant? 
by uh, marrying someone who's not a believer. Why do we profane the covenant with God? So we're violating our salvation. The arrangement, the binding covenant that we have with God. So we're going to bind ourselves to someone that He says don't bind yourself with, which is profaning the binding that we have with Him. So basically, gentlemen, take your choice. But don't claim that you can have both at the same time. You violate His character. You violate the nature of our relationship with Him when you uh, bind yourself to someone that He says, I'm not bound to. So you want to be sure you bind yourself to someone humanly that He's bound to. Thirdly, it's a sin against the church. And this is what we often forget. He says, we're breaking faith with one another. You notice in verse 10. So we break the covenant of our fathers, which is the covenant we have with God, by breaking covenant with the church. You say, hang on just a minute. You're talking about my private life. Yeah, I'm talking about what you thought was your private life. It's not just your private life. There are obviously private aspects to it. I don't want to know all the secret things you whispered into her ear. But I do want to know, as your brother, who is it you're dating? Is she eligible for marriage or not? Is she equal, would she be equally yoked with you or not? I do care about that. And it's not just because I'm a pastor. Because I'm a brother in your church. Not You don't go to Second Presbyterian Church, but I'm in the church of Jesus Christ with you. So I care. What it means for us to coalesce in groups of little churches around town. And I don't know how many we have represented here, but let's say we have 30 churches represented here. We have 30 little groups who are supposed to be holding each other accountable for whom you date. It's the church's business. Now, does that mean that we go whispering and gossiping and getting our nose stuck in everybody's business? No, but it means there is a system in every church. There ought to be in your youth group, in your college group, in your young singles group. There ought to be some very clear discussions about when you get interested in someone, is anybody who is a spiritual mature leader, whether a lay leader or a clergy or somebody else, involved at all in discussing that relationship? I think that's really important. Because if someone is moving toward marriage with a person who's not a believer, they're sinning against the church. Now, we'll see why that's so important uh, in just a moment. It's a sin against the church. We break faith with one another. Fourthly, it's a contradiction of our faith. Judah has broken faith, verse 11. Look at this strong language. Broken faith? Recanting my faith? Yeah. Malachi is saying you may as well stand up on top of your table and say, I don't believe the Apostles' Creed anymore. Just recant your faith. And gentlemen, I really think what you do in your sex, romantic, and married life makes a lot clearer statement to people around you about what you believe than if you were to stand up on the table and recite the Apostles' Creed. I really do. I think it, it demonstrates. This is a very powerful demonstration of what you really believe because it's so weird. It's becoming less and less the majority view in the, in the society. In fact, it is the minority view. And you will stand out if you hold to these standards. I think it's one of the clearest ways to demonstrate your faith. Uh, when I talk to college, uh, rather high school seniors, which I do uh, in our church about four times during the year, we just get lunch together and we talk about various things that they're going to be facing next year. And, of course, one of them is the sexual life. And uh, the parents who are hosting it, they always sit in the next room real quietly and just listen in like this. And I like to talk in a real low tone to really frustrate them because they can't hear. And they come up next to the door and try to listen in to give my sex talk to these uh, 18-year-olds. But one of the things I say to them is, you know, you may be wondering, those of you who are mature Christians, how are you going to have a ministry on a college campus? I say, let me tell you something. If you do what we're talking about today, you will have a ministry because you're going to be weird. (laughs) If you live out a Christian sexual ethic on the university campus, you're going to stand out. And your girlfriends, I say the girls, are going to ask you, why are you doing this? Why don't you show the guy you love him? And you need to have an answer for what love really is. And it's going to be different from their definition of love. And that will lead to a, to a conversation 
about where you got that idea, which will lead you right straight to Jesus Christ. Same thing with the guys. It's even weirder with the guys. You need to have an answer because someone's going to ask you why you're such a prude and you're going to have a real rugged masculine answer for that. It's going to have to do with your fealty, just like a Marine, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to lead right straight to him. So if you get this thing straight, commit yourself to it, figure out not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it, you will have a witness on the college campus. It's really true. You know what? It's true among you guys, too. Because the sexual ethic has radically changed. I don't need to go into that. You know more about that than I do. But basically, it is a contradiction of our faith for us to follow the mainstream mentality. And look, in many ways, the church is not helping you very much at all. Uh, Most of the church in this country, as soon as there's a majority opinion that clearly expressed in the culture, you notice they change their doctrine of sexual ethics. It's very interesting. Let me give you one example. If you just take the controversial issue of abortion, whatever you, whatever you believe on it, I'm not making a doctrinal statement about it. I'm just making an observation about the response of the churches. Before 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision, you could not find one church in this country who would say that an elective abortion was ethically correct. You could not find one theologian in the history of the church who published an opinion that abortion, elective abortion, was a Christian ethical possibility. After 73, the Supreme Court, the majority of the people in our country, and so on, you find this huge shift. Now, whether it's right or wrong, I just find it interesting that the church was so sure of itself until people started to disagree with us. Oh, no, what are we going to do now? So oftentimes, churches are mere reflections or mirrors of their culture rather than prophetic voices. That's the reason we're studying the prophets. Because you're a prophet and you're supposed to find your voice and find out how you're going to stand in your environment. And you have a choice to make. You can either mirror what's around you or you can anchor your life in the eternal truths of God's word and be a prophet. A nice prophet. A gentlemanly prophet. A kind, merciful prophet. But a prophet nonetheless. So that's what's being said here, is that by going along with pagan practices, they are denying what they claim. And I'm telling you what, the unbelieving world who knows this Bible, and there are some who do, who don't believe it in terms of putting their trust in the Messiah in this Bible, but they know the Bible intellectually, they're holding the church in contempt for their cowardice. Down deep inside, they know we're a bunch of chickens. Now, they're railing at us and saying, why do you believe this? Why do you believe that? But down deep inside, they're just waiting to see if we really believe what we say we believe. They're, they're, they're waiting to see if we believe our Bible. I've seen this happen where, where people have revealed to me down deep inside they had just hold contempt for people who hold on to a book that they don't really believe. Why don't you just be honest and chuck the book and break your faith and stand up and say you broke your faith and you don't believe it anymore. Then the, then the pagan won't hold you in contempt because now you're not being a hypocrite. But when you hold the book and you want to hold something contradictory to the book, even the unbeliever holds you in contempt. What do you think God's thinking? He says you've broken faith. So why don't you just go ahead and admit it? Well, Malachi did admit it for everybody. <laughs> that's what preachers have a bad, a bad habit of doing that, you know, admitting everybody's sins publicly. And that's what Malachi did. And then look at this next phrase. He says it's a detestable act. Woo! This is strong language. You can look in Deuteronomy 32:16, and you'll see the word detestable act, or it's the word for abomination. An abomination has been committed in the sanctuary. You say abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. What's happened? An abomination has happened here. What it must be really bad? Oh yeah, uh, Sarah's dating John. What? Yeah, Sarah's dating John. Sarah's a believer and John's not a believer. That's a gross immorality. (laughs) You say, what? Say it again? Yeah. Two people moving toward marriage who are not eligible for marriage. And it's an abomination. In other words, he's saying that it's really messing uh, with your ethical, moral statement in the community. Lastly, you'll notice... It is a desecration of God's worship. He says, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. So when you marry an unbeliever, you may as well 
take sewage and go pour it into the sanctuary in here and just desecrate the whole place. That's what he's saying. Now, what is the sanctuary? It's the Kodesh. It's, it's the word for holy. So scholars say he means either the holy seed, which means the people, or it could be the holy place, the temple, or tabernacle. Uh, in this case, temple. We don't know exactly, but it's just the word sanctuary is used here. And I, I think I would say the, the obvious interpretation for us would be the sanctuary is God's people because we're the, the people is the temple. So we are desecrating the temple of God, desecrating the church. When we violate God's standards for whom it is, who it is, we're supposed to be married. Now, here's the way it happens. You remember Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth. Solomon did fine until he got to be old. And he got really presumptuous about what he could do when he was old, rich, famous, smart, and powerful. And he got presumptuous. He thought he could have as many wives as he wanted and as many concubines, and he had a bunch of them. And he married a bunch of pagan wives, and he ended his life very poorly. And he's become axiomatic for how not to close out your life. Lord, help me not be like Solomon. Many men have prayed. Because he got presumptuous. What happened? He married foreign wives. They started fussing at him and whining and complaining and drove him crazy. You know how bad it is with one? (laughs) He had hundreds, hundreds of whining, complaining women. And women who are listening to this tape, don't take it personally, just stop whining. (laughs) And (laughs) you can't hear the applause in the background, but it's happening. Solomon had hundreds of these women. And they all wanted their childhood God to be honored. And Solomon couldn't take it anymore. He was the wisest man on the face of the earth. And he made a huge mistake. And he got weary and gave in to his whining women instead of standing up for the Lord. Big mistake. You know what? Solomon was powerful. He was very wise. And he caved in. Are you that powerful? And are you that wise? You're likely to cave in too. And you're going to be making those real subtle compromises to begin with. And before long, Solomon had idolatry happening all over Israel because he caved in. It began with a very subtle cave in. And it does with you too. And you begin making compromises in your thinking because you like peace. The name Solomon means shalom, peace. He liked peace. So you're going to bring peace by making all kinds of moral compromises. So that's what happens. Then what happens is you desecrate the sanctuary of God. You desecrate His worship. You desecrate His will for society because you're in a compromised situation. You can no longer lead with the same power and influence you had before. Furthermore, you desecrate the church this way. You're bound to Christ. You're bound to God through Christ. He's the mediator of the covenant. Christ is. So you're bound to God in holy marriage, as it were, eternal marriage. You're then bound to the church. If you join a Presbyterian church, you take oaths, solemn oaths, just like you would in marriage, as you join the church. You're bound to her. So you have an organic relationship with the church. Now you're binding yourself to an unbeliever. What are you doing? You're bringing, by virtue of binding to that person, you're bringing them into the holy community and desecrating it. You're bringing what is unclean, that is unbelieving, into a believing world and you desecrate it. Now, I'm all for evangelism. I'm all for changing our world. I'm all for reaching unbelieving, beautiful young ladies for Christ. Just don't use marriage and dating to do it. There's another method. So you don't desecrate the sanctuary in order to evangelize someone. You keep the sanctuary believing. Now, that's what he's saying. This is a social phenomenon. It's not just a sexual phenomenon. It's a communal phenomenon. And your dating life, your romantic life, is a communal reality. And in our society, we think very much individualistically, coming out of the Enlightenment. My business is my business. And I'm, you know, I'm my own boss. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm an island. 
all this crud. You're not. You're related socially in various ways to the civil society and to the church. And your church, your church relationship implies an obligation to build up that church through your sexual life, your romantic life, your dating life, and your marriage life. So and I, I can look around this room and I see a variety of marriages that I know are wonderful examples. And I've told some of you personally how much I appreciate the way you're husbanding because you're setting an incredible example for other people in our church. I've told some of you in our church that. If I haven't told you, it doesn't mean I don't think you have a great marriage. You just haven't had the opportunity. But it's true. Those of you who are being faithful to your wives, who are living out the Christian marital covenant, are incredibly powerful in a church. Because others are looking at you at moments when you don't think they are. And you're setting a great example. So your marriage has a communal effect. If you're violating that covenant, that also has a powerful effect that's negative. So just realize that Malachi starts off by talking about God's character, our relationship to him, our covenant in salvation with him, and then starts talking about the church and its relationship to the church. So all this dating business is very important. Now, B, God has told us whom not to marry. He calls it marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Don't marry the daughter of a foreign god. You're the son of the true God. So don't marry the daughter of an untrue God. You see how your marriage covenant is related to the covenant that you have with God. And you want to be sure that that other person is in covenant with your God. In selecting a spouse, one should always look for a compatibility. Always. Just in terms of coaching your children. When you talk about, who are you thinking about marrying? Ask them that question. I'll go, Dad. I don't want to. No, I'm serious. I want you to answer that question. You're 15 years old. One day, honey, when you're eligible for marriage, what kind of man are you looking for? Oh, Daddy. No, I would really like to know. What are you looking for? Get her to talk to you. Well, I want him to be handsome. That's good. That's called physical compatibility. She ought to be beautiful in your eyes. Now, after you marry her, you make her beautiful in your eyes. You decide she's beautiful. Before you marry her, you better be a good judge of that. <laughs> because you don't want to have to be trying too hard to say she's beautiful after you marry her. <laughs> after you marry her, you've got to make her beautiful. Before you marry her, you be sure you think she's beautiful. And that's important. Physical compatibility. And then... The 15-year-old might say, well, I'd like to marry somebody I get along with real well. Right, psychological compatibility. A lot of marriages really struggle because you have two psychologically immature people trying to work things out. It's really tough. Psychological health has a lot to do with a successful marriage. And those of you who have been married for about two months know what I'm talking about. All that family stuff comes to play, doesn't it? The way her father treated her has a lot to do with what she thinks about you. Sure does. And you'll be finding out implications of that 30 years later, boys. Yes, sir. So psychological compatibility and you're, you're wise to listen to your parents about what they see in family dynamics and all the rest. Well, I'd like to have someone who's smart. Yes, intellectual compatibility. You want to be sure that this is someone you can talk with. Someone that, whose mind you're interested in. Now, if your hormones work like mine when you're 18... I guess I was thinking more about the body, you know, than the mind. You know, very sexually oriented. Your, your testosterone is raging. And that's the reason that young men need some older men to say, to ask a question. Are you all, what do you all talk about when you're together? That's one question I ask my own children. What do you talk about? I want to see if this, is, this has the prospects for a lifelong friendship. And a lot of times, 18-year-olds are just thinking about what they want to sleep with instead of thinking about friendship. Uh, social compatibility. Do you generally enjoy the same types of people? Or is she going to want to be hanging out with one sort of crowd and you're going to be wanting to do another? It's a reality, and you need to, to face it. I'm not saying that people from two different social backgrounds don't get married. I'm not saying that at all. Neither is God. I'm just saying that you need to be aware of what one's inclinations are, and then talk that through and see if you find a social compatibility. It's important. Occupational compatibility. 
it's pretty difficult, I think, for two physicians who have full-time practices to have a successful marriage. It's done. I've seen it before. But those are two really gifted, energetic, balanced people who don't have to have a lot of input from each other to be happy. They are emotionally self-contained in a lot of ways. And they don't require a lot of input from the other in their marriage. They're built that way when I've seen them be successful. Most of us are not built that way. My wife has been a housewife by her choice. And I am so glad because, you know, if you work a lot of hours a week, it's nice if the other one is not trying to work that many hours outside the home also. Now, I'm not saying anything against two working spouses. I'm just saying you need to be aware of this. You need to be sure that this would make for a good marriage, uh, occupational compatibility. There needs to be recreational compatibility. Uh, one may like to go to the beach and one in the mountains. So what are you going to do? One guy said he had a great marriage and a friend of his came up to him and said, tell me the secret to your marriage. He said, oh, this is what we do. He said, a nice walk by moonlight, stopping by the, uh, you know, the favorite restaurant, having a glass of wine, and a great meal with full dessert, walking home. I do it on Thursdays and she on Saturday. <laughs> I suggest that uh, you try another method. Uh, find some recreational compatibility. But the most important compatibility is spiritual. The most important compatibility is spiritual. And everybody, well, you start with these other ones. I agree. You know, in a dating relationship, I don't think, well, some people do. But maybe in the first date, you don't say, tell me about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How intimate is it? What's your prayer life like? So there are obviously some, some things that attract you to want to get to know someone. But how long are you going to leave this issue off in a dating relationship? Once again, in speaking with you, most, most of us in this room have children that are at least 10, 18 age age. Some of you are single. Some of you, your children haven't gotten to that point. Some of you don't have kids. But a lot of us have had teenage kids or have teenage kids. How long is it before you start advising them about what they're looking for? What is this spiritual compatibility? First, a solid trust in Jesus Christ. You don't say, oh, they, they're, a, they're very religious too. Isn't that nice? They're very religious. That's not nice at all. Solomon's wives were very religious. That was his problem. They were very religious. Basic theological convictions. Is God triune? Is Jesus Christ His only Son? Is Jesus Christ the way of salvation? Did His work on the cross accomplish our salvation by forgiveness of sins? Was He raised from the dead? Is He coming back? Is the Bible God's Word? These things are very important, especially when you start doing family devotions with your children with that woman. Basic ethical convictions. Are we going to be trying to climb the social ladder? Or are we going to be trying to help the poor? What's your view of race relations? Gentlemen, this is very important in marriage for a man who's serious about Jesus Christ. So you need to have some general ideas about ethical convictions. I don't mean doctrinal opinions. I mean convictions, opinions that people base their life and behavior on. That takes a while to observe that, but you need to know what they say they believe, and then you need to be able to observe what they really believe. That takes some time. General spiritual maturity. Can they undergo trials and persecutions? Are they willing to stand up to the contempt of the world? Or do they cave? What's their maturity level? Are they able to undergo bitterness of other people? Are they able to love their enemies? Or do they despise their enemies? Where's their spiritual maturity? Christ-centered ambitions. What do they want out of life? Big house, picket fence, SUV, Dog in the back, big bank account, retire at 55. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> what, are, what are her ambitions? Or does she really aspire to expanding the kingdom of God? Active commitment to church. Does she say she believes in God or does she actually fall down before Him and worship Him? Regularly. If she doesn't, that's telling you something. And if it doesn't bother you, it's telling you something about you. 
So what's her active commitment to church and what does that church believe? What are their practices? What does she think about it? Does she have mature Christian friends? Who are her best buddies and what do they do and what do they talk about? This is extremely important because that's what she expects you to do and you to talk about because you're getting ready to be her best friend. And that's what she expects. A lot of folks just chuck all this. They don't even think about it. Now, see, God has warned us about the consequences of disobedience. <laughs> Talk about strong language. May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob. Whoever he may be, even though he brings offerings, regardless of his position, regardless of his piety. He may be the senior minister. Cut him off. Woo! Huh. God is saying, look. Instead of desecrating the sanctuary, why don't you just go out and join the, the pagan clubs? So just, why don't you just say to the person, look, you don't want to be a Christian. You don't want to be a follower of Christ. Just go on over there and belong to that club over there or that religion or that temple or, or that mosque or, or whatever you want to do. But don't belong to the church of Jesus Christ and then flagrantly, blatantly contradict his will. What do I do if I'm already married to an unbeliever? Number one, if you married her as a believer, that is, you were a believer and you married an unbeliever, just acknowledge your sin. Now, Paul addresses this question in 1 Corinthians 7. We're not going to go back there because of time. But he addresses it. And he's addressing women who were married to their husbands as unbelievers. In other words, the women were unbelievers, they were pagans, and the men were pagans. Then the women got converted, okay? Now, that has happened to some of you. You married as unbelievers, then you got converted and she didn't. What do you do? Paul says, you stay in there and love that spouse. Don't you desert your husband, he says to the women in 1 Corinthians 7. Because he says, and this sounds like a contradiction, but it's just the other way of looking at it. He says, don't you know that your husband is sanctified through his wife? So you didn't marry him when you were a believer. You married him when you were an unbeliever. Now you're a believer. Don't you realize that you're, in some senses, affecting him for the good? Well, you do. It never justifies marrying an unbeliever. But if you are in a marriage with an unbeliever, you stay devoted to that marriage. But if you married her when you were a believer, you have to acknowledge your sin. Secondly, love your spouse. Make it a great marriage. And I, have to, I want to say for, on behalf of the church, we're in the business of helping you have a great marriage regardless to whom you're married. There's a big difference between having a successful marriage and being successful in marriage. Our business is to help you be successful in your marriage, regardless of whether the marriage is successful or not. You can't control the marriage. You can only control yourself. So let's be successful in our marriage. Don't worry so much about whether your marriage is successful. And I think a lot of Christians have gotten way off base there. They get all wired up as to whether they have a successful marriage. And they get into image management. Why don't you just be a good husband? And let the marriage take care of itself. So, the first thing is to acknowledge your sin if you did sin. And secondly, love your spouse. And thirdly, teach others correctly. So what if you did screw up? Why don't we help the people 10 years younger than ourselves or 40 years younger than ourselves? Why don't we help them not screw up? Now, let's be honest about our own... Let's not tell them all the details. That might not help. But let's be honest. I haven't always followed the advice I'm giving you, but I've, I've observed many things, and here's what I want to teach from the Scripture. So teach it out. And then some observations. Number one, our dating practices today have more to do with the advent of the automobile than with the Scriptures. Our dating system really began with the advent of the automobile in the first part of the 20th century, when you take a, a girl out all by yourself. Let me tell you what it was like in the 19th century. You're interested in a young lady? Okay. You get your parents to see if you can have the church picnic with that other family. <laughs> That's the way you do it. And you go on a picnic, two families. And you can chat with a young lady right there in the presence of everybody else just watching you. You've done that a couple of times, and then you ask permission of the father if you can take a little promenade, a little walk with his daughter. In the view of everybody else. Fine. Take a little walk. If you're old enough and you do that for a while, you 
then would be obligated in some ways to state your intentions to that other father. He wants to know why are you spending this time out of earshot range with my daughter? What are your intentions? Famous question. And you should be able to say, sir, I'm getting to know your daughter and thinking that perhaps I would like to consider making a proposition at some point. But we need to get to know each other. Okay, you can continue talking. So you can come over to the house and sit in the parlor, just the two of you, but everyone else within earshot. And you can have your conversation. But you ain't taking yourself, taking my daughter off all by yourself in the backseat of some automobile. Forget that. Tell me your intentions. That's the way it used to be until the automobile come along, came along and now you take her off and do what? Romance her? With no intentions? What is this about? Teasing her romantic affections with no movement toward the possibility of a covenant relationship and no accountability to the father? Outrageous! Really. The 19th century father could not understand what we're doing at all. And I just raise it as a question about whether what we're doing is any good. Secondly, dating should be conducted in view of prospective marriage. Dating leads toward a purpose. Therefore... When your daughter is thinking about dating somebody, well, why would you date him? Oh, he's cute. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Looks like a mess to me, but uh, so he's cute. But what else do you know about him? Oh, I don't know. Martha says that he's, he's a lot of fun. Well, he's cute, and you've heard that he's fun. All right. And then I walk through with my daughter about the strategy of dating. And I tell her what dating is for. So, for example, uh, well, let's move to the next one. Some parents are not adequately engaged with their children's dating lives. You need to be talking with your kids about who they're dating and why they're dating them. And how, what kind of questions do you ask? First of all, you need to think about whether your daughter or your son is old enough. If your son or daughter is not old enough to get married, don't you think that their relationship with the opposite gender would be a little bit different than if they were 21 when they are prospects for bride and groom? Seems to me they should be. Seems to me that largely kids prior to maritable age ought to move in groups and all learn to relate to groups as friends. For after all, a marriage is a friendship and they'll, learn, they'll be the best spouse if they learn how to develop honest, non-sexual friendships with the opposite gender. Most a lot of guys don't know how to relate to the opposite gender unless they're moving on them sexually. And that's because they skipped a whole section in their life about how to relate to the opposite gender as a friend. And I think a lot of our dating is way too early. Uh, now, I think I've observed in the last 30 years it's gotten a little later, and they do more, move more in groups. Maybe it's just in our church, but I think that's very helpful. Who are they dating? When they get to be 18, they are eligible, believe it or not. Who are they dating? Do they understand that to have a multiple date with someone, they ought to be thinking in their mind, this could lead to a marriage. If not, why be involved in the dating in the first place? Now, I'm not talking about escorting someone to an event. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a date where you are moving in, getting more intimately Related to that person. What's the purpose of that if there is no prospect for marriage in the future? And the length of the courtship. You'll find in the Westminster larger catechism that under the seventh commandment, if you've looked at the larger catechism, you know that all the commandments have a long list of sins that are summarized by that commandment. Under the seventh commandment, one of the sins of committing adultery is prolonged courtships because you're simply teasing yourselves when you have no intention of moving toward marriage. You need to be decisive, not prematurely decisive, but you need to collect the data about the prospects for that relationship and make a decision and either move ahead or cut it off. And men need to take the leadership on that and sons need to be taught this. And some parents are not adequately engaged. Some parents are unwisely pushy. They try to get their kids in romantic sort of things way too early in life. 
because they think it's cute or they think their kid's going to be left out because all the other kids you know, are holding hands and kissing and having a girlfriend, boyfriend, and you're afraid you're going to be left out of the fast crowd, the cool crowd, because all their kids are doing this, that, and the other, and your kid's a nerd. And I'm dead serious. That's what drives a lot of the dysfunctions in our schools. It's because of the parents who have social aspirations, and their kids pick up on that. Here's the way they pick up on it. When they're going out drinking, you just turn your, your head and don't even, you intentionally don't notice. All kids will be kids. That's because that's what your friends are doing. You want your kids to be cool so they'll be friends with the other cool kids so that you are cool as a friend of all the cool crowd. That drives the drinking practice on the campus of MUS. I know this because we've researched it. So I'm not saying only MUS, but I know MUS because I studied it. Others have studied it and I saw their results rather. So there are all kinds of dysfunctions in parents that are handed down to kids, including their dating lives. Fifthly, our dating is largely driven by our felt needs rather than the presence of Christ and the real needs of our date. In marriage, the two keys spiritually are practice the presence of Jesus Christ and serve her. You get those two things right, you've got it. So what are the two principles in dating? Practice the presence of Jesus Christ and serve her. If you practice those principles, that will keep you out of a lot of sexual problems. Because you're serving her, not your own appetite. What happens when you get into sexual promiscuity? You're serving your own appetite. So you're sinning against the covenant. You're sinning against God. You're sinning against the church. You're sinning against her even if she agrees and cooperates. What good does it do if you do something evil against her and she goes along with it? You're taking advantage of her and she goes along with it. What good is that for her? You're not serving her. You're serving her by honoring boundaries which actually build her up. So you practice the presence of Christ, serving her in dating. That's the same thing you'll do in marriage. Practice the presence of Christ, including your sexual life, and serving her, including your sexual life. So this is what dating ought to be about. Now, we're going to stop right there, and we're going to move this next section into next week. This is also very important that uh, I don't mind slowing down and taking a little bit extra time. And we'll pick this up next week on uh, Roman numeral number two. And uh, you may say... (coughs) Pastor, gosh, I'm 60 years old. I've been married for 40 years. Why in the world do you give me the stuff on dating? I'll tell you why. Because there's some grandparents in here who need to have a few conversations with their grandsons. That's why. And there's some parents in here who need to have some conversations with their sons. And there's some uncles in here who are given opportunities that you're passing up with your nephews and nieces. You're passing up those opportunities because you haven't thought it through yourself about the way for them to live a happy and a holy life. And this is it. And it's a huge area of need in our culture. So let's go out there and be prophets. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us sexual beings. You did it. And you did it for a purpose. To display your glory. To show us the meaning of intimate relationship between yourself and us. To give us a little taste of what it means to be in communion closely with another being. And we pray that we'll take this gift and use it well. That you'll give us wisdom in, in teaching and counseling and coaching the succeeding generations. Help us to set a good example before them. Help us to be good coaches, good teachers, good prayer supporters. And we pray that in your church, O oh Lord, we may see happiness and holiness abounding through our families and even in our dating relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Jens.